Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today is going to be a fun episode with my friend Calvin Halliday out of Oregon. And Cal works with Sheep Mountain Outfitters and Extreme Outer Limits TV and MOA Rifles. Cal, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Jay. How are you? Good. I told you uh, before this went live, I was going to introduce you as my liberal friend from Oregon who's a uh, turkey expert. Oh, that that is me exactly. To, that's exactly to a T? I, I love to vote for all the Democrats and hunt turkeys. That's my favorite. Oh, <laughs> uh, Cal, um, let's start out uh, today. We're going to go into Oregon. We're going to talk about sheep and elk and mule deer um, and talk about some of your background and what have you. But before we go into that, um, I know you have a military background. I just want to... Uh, kind of let the listeners know a little bit about your background, and um, I want to start with your military background. Um, tell me which branch of the service you're in. Sure, Jay. So I'm uh, I'm actually uh, uh, in the Army, the uh, Oregon Army National Guard. So I'm coming up on uh, about I'm coming up on 10 years of service here, real shortly. Um, so I enlisted young, and uh, kind of just did it to uh, put myself through college and started on the enlisted side of things and uh, went to college and uh, went through a green to gold program and became a, an army infantry officer. And uh, it was a great thing for me, I think. It kind of squared me away at a, at a younger age. And um, I haven't had any crazy illustrious career or anything, but I've had a solid career and um, been doing well. I kind of plan to stay and do my full 20 years. So as long as my wife continues to put up with it and put up with me, I think uh, I'm going to continue to plan to do that. So well, knowing your wife, you definitely married up. Um, guys out there, they should listen to Cal about sheep and elk and mule deer and all that, but they should definitely uh, pay attention to uh, how to marry up. So uh, that's kudos to you, Cal. Yeah, yeah. I met her really young, Jay, in college, so I think I got her before she knew any better, to be honest. <laughs> caught her I got really lucky. What, what my friends always say about me is they say you caught her at a weak moment. Yeah, yeah, I think I must have. So I got, I got very uh, good for you. My wife is good for you. fantastic and uh, my number one supporter. And I've got uh, two young children. Uh, Canyon is she's two years old, and then uh, I have a four-month-old named Ember also. So we're we're a real busy family of four. Good for you. Um, your background uh, in the National Guard and you know in the Army. Um, has led you to become a very proficient shooter. Talk a little bit about your marksmanship and, and you know, learning how to shoot properly and how that's, um, you know, helped you perform in the field uh, hunting. Sure. Um, you know, def we definitely shoot in the military quite a bit. Uh, I was an enlisted infantry guy and then now on the officer side of things in the infantry. Um, so I got a lot of time behind the trigger, so to speak, shooting. Um, but I'll tell you, the military has its own system that it does. And uh, some of those things carry over um, into the field and some don't. Uh, but most of all, it taught me to think cognitively and, and uh, not emotionally about things. And then I think coming to the shooting sport side of things and getting more into this long-range rifle shooting, um, Bob Back of Extreme Matter Limits and MOA Rifles, he really took things to the next level for me personally and uh, showed me, you know, hey, this is how we do it in the field and this is why, and, you know, and at first it was kind of like, well, this is what I've learned in the military. And I think a lot of people that, that maybe roadblocks them, Jay, to be honest, you know, well, the military can't be wrong about this. And it's not necessarily one's right or one's wrong. Um, you know, when I was taught by Bob Beck, who is, you know, arguably the best shot I've ever seen out in the field. Uh, everything he teaches you kind of, ha it has a definite reason behind it. And he'll say, you know, hey, we lay like this because of this reason in the field. And I'm like, you know what, that makes a lot of sense. Versus the military, you know, we're teaching a, a mass group of bald 18-year-old men how to shoot a rifle. And it's, it, you know, it's kind of like if you're cooking for a mass group of people, you, you, there's those staples that you tend to see in hunting camps, you know, because if they're cooking for 20 people, it makes sense to cook meals for 20 people and cook this certain meal. Well, in the military, if we're going to teach everybody the same way that they're going to put their nose on the receiver and they're going to do this and do that, then it makes a lot of sense when you're teaching people in mass formations. Um, but spending that individualized time with Bob, as I said, um, really finite, fixed some little minor errors I was making and really took my shooting to the next level versus where it was. 
That's fantastic. Yeah, I know he's a heck of a resource. Uh, obviously, an unreal shot and knows so much about shooting. That's great that you've been able to spend as much time uh, with him as you have. Um, Cal, today I want to talk about, obviously, we've got a, a quick turnaround time. I'm going to um, make this episode go live today. We've got a deadline tomorrow in Oregon, I believe, on the 15th. Uh, of May, and um, I've been on my Gould's turkey hunt. I wanted to get uh, this conversation with you, oh, before I left on the Gould's turkey hunts, and one thing led to another and just didn't get to it, but I think some uh, people will find some real value in this. Um, you're very active in the Oregon hunting community, and um, I, I want to talk to you about what you specialize in, and from, from an outsider you know, um, following you on Instagram, and I encourage the listeners to um, definitely check Cal out on Instagram uh, and uh, follow you. But your specialty is is bighorn sheep, elk, and mule deer. Um, let's dive into uh, the units that you like to hunt for elk. Um, let's let's start with elk and um, talk to the listeners a little bit about some of the different units. Uh, and what have you. Sure, Jay, no problem. Uh, I should probably start off with, uh, you know, a little bit about Sheep Mountain Outfitters. There's there's four of us involved with Sheep Mountain Outfitters, myself, Dan Blankenship, Scott Coe, and Todd Longgood. And we're all Oregon guys, uh, live on the eastern side of the state here, or the dry side, the better side, the non-liberal side. So uh, <laughs> we, we really enjoy it, um, and we, we each are very passionate hunters in our own, and then obviously we guide an outfit um, as well. So the majority of our elk hunting, if we're speaking about elk primarily, that we do um, is located in the Lookout Mountain Unit. So it's unit number 64, and it's kind of on the breaks of the Snake River um, in the very eastern part of Oregon along the Idaho border. And... Uh, we do some big pieces of private land, uh, archery, as well as rifle elk hunting with very high success rates um, and have a great time. Uh, the beautiful thing about there being four of us involved in the business is that we have a lot of experience in different units throughout the state. Um, I would say that not a ton of us are, you know, I know you had John on from uh, Eden Ridge over there, and the west side of the state is really not our cup of tea or our forte, if you will. Um, but I think between all of us, we probably hit most of, if not all, of the units in the eastern part of the state. So That sounds good. And and. What are the opportunities as far as, um, obviously, Oregon has your draw system, but they all, you also have, uh, I believe, some landowner tags and ways for guys to get elk tags other than the draw. Talk a little bit about those options. And we sure do, Jay. Um, so we, we have some landowner tag opportunities, uh, and, and I'm speaking more specifically about rifle elk hunting when I'm talking about that. Uh, the beautiful thing is where we outfit for, for elk is a general archery unit. So any hunter, resident or non-resident, can just hunt with us with a just a general archery over-the-counter tag. Um, so that's that's something that's real fortunate for us, and uh, doesn't limit guys. They don't have to go through the draw process necessarily. They just have to buy an Oregon hunting license and then their general archery tag. Um, and that tag, Jay, will will they can hunt with us. Um, they can hunt in the majority of the units throughout the state of Oregon, with the exception of four or five. Um, controlled archery units, and those are kind of our considered top-tier units in the state. Okay, so if they want to hunt with you, um, basically you guys have private land. Um, the tags are over-the-counter. Man, that seems like a great situation for you guys as outfitters and the fact that you limit the amount of people that come on the private land, but it's easy for someone to get a tag. That's kind of a perfect recipe for... Um, uh, you know, not only you as an outfitter, but for those guys that want to be able to pay to hunt, that seems like a, a good option. It really is, Jay, and what's really nice is if, you know, Oregon's a great place to come and hunt, and these guys can come and hunt with us, um, and we take, uh, we, we really limit, Jay, we try and keep the quality very high, both the quality and genetic potential of the bulls, that, you know, bulls, bucks, sheep, everything that we hunt, um, and we want to keep the experience at an all-time high for guys, so we could take you know, two or three or four times even the time, uh, the amount of hunters that we do, um, but we don't because we want to keep the experience level extremely high for all of our clients. So 
a hunter, we will kind of project them and say, you know, hey, Jay, you're gonna, you've got an archery spot with us in 2020, but in the meantime, we don't have to affect your applications in the state of Oregon. We can still apply you for some top-tier units um, if that was what you're interested in, or you could go on another controlled hunt without the, you know, throughout the state, and we're not going to burn your points, so to speak. On the year that you hunt with us, you just get that general archery tag, and you're ready to go hunting. That's awesome. Um, Cal, talk a little bit about a handful of those top uh, units that, you know, Oregon is known for as far as their limited draw units um, that, that are very, very popular as far as quality. Um, maybe rank them and, you know, even if you don't have experience specifically within them, talk a little bit about, you know, growing up there and, and knowing those units. Sure, Jay. So I, I'm located here in, in La Grande, Oregon, and uh, I'm kind of in the epicenter of the, the big, what we call the big three or the big five um, units in Oregon as far as elk go. So in my opinion, um, you know, one and two is kind of a flop between the Winaha or the Walla Walla unit for elk. So these n units are located in the northeastern corner. They actually border the state of Washington. Um, and, that you know, that, that southeastern portion of Washington, the Toucanon, is kind of famed for their bigger bulls, and we definitely get a spillover from that as well. So uh, personally, I'd probably say that that unit uh, 56, the Winaha, is, is my favorite unit as far as potential to produce a top-level bull for our state. And uh, just for reference, you know, we're definitely not Arizona. I'd say any bull north of 350 in this state is a real trophy. Um, they can get bigger than that, certainly, and every year bulls bigger than that are killed. Um, but it's definitely no Arizona. Uh, next, I'd say the Walla Walla unit, number 55, um, has very, very similar genetic potential. Um, those two units are extremely hard to access, a lot of wilderness ground. Uh, big, steep canyons, rivers that you have to cross, um, horse trails that are not really maintained to a super high level, so they may not even be accessible to stock. Um, but if a guy's willing to work real hard, uh, you think you can do really well in there. Moving on, Jay, uh, Unit 54, Mount Emily, is a real famed unit um, in the state. Uh, in the past few years, a couple bulls north of 380 have been killed in that unit, as well as uh, one bull that was real close to 430. Um, the unit is uh, really unique. It's big canyon country in the Blues Mountains in northeast Oregon here, uh, but there's a really great established road system throughout the unit, so hunters can can get around really well um, for the most part. And you can kind of, it's the unit's really made for rifle hunting, especially in the advent of these newer long-range rifles. Um, and the rifle season in these three units is 17 days long. So it's a long time to hunt, hunt elk with, with these long-range capable guns. But Mount Emily is probably my least favorite of those three. Uh, it's just because I don't like how, how many darn roads there are. It seems like uh, it, it really increases the amount of competition in the unit. You can't leave a bull, you know. It's kind of when you see a bull, you've got to go get him killed, and you've got to get him killed immediately because there's probably three other guys looking at him kind of thing. Um, but I'll eat crow on that every single year because it seems like that unit throws out a huge bull or two every single year. So very, very good unit. Um, all of those units, Jay, have controlled archery hunting as well as the next unit I'll talk about, which is uh, Unit 57, Flood Springs. Um, it's kind of not considered in the same quality as, as those big three units, but definitely can produce a big bull. Uh, it's got larger tracts of private land, which can allow bulls to rut and kind of survive the rut, and there's controlled archery hunting in that unit as well. Um, so that's a, that's a popular unit for non-residents to apply for because some of these, you know, Winaha, Walla Walla, Mount Emily hunts for non-residents are taking in excess of 20 preference points to hunt, Jay, and that's pretty unachievable, especially for, you know, a younger guy like me that's maybe just starting in the, in the draw process, so... Some of your better units that a guy can more feasibly hunt, I'd say, you know, that Flood Springs for a non-resident, as well as the Snake River unit, number 59. Um, what's, what's really cool about that unit, Jay, is it's over-the-counter for archery. It's, uh, it's about a, as tough a physical hunt as a guy's going to see. It takes place right there in the heart of North Hell's Canyon. Um, water is a very limited resource, uh, but the age quality of the bulls is, I think, a little higher than areas throughout the state, strictly because they're harder to access. Good stuff. Um, go, ahead. go ahead. 
I should probably well, talk just a little bit about Central Oregon. It's not exactly my forte, but I will say that Unit 37, the Ochicos, um, as well as 38, Grizzly, those units have extremely good genetic potential and can produce some really big bulls. They tend to produce some of the better bulls in the state as well uh, because, again, of large tracts of private land with very limited hunting pressure. So. You know, the recipe for with that genetic potential, very low hunter pressure, and uh, an increased age class, every now and then those units can produce absolute stud bulls as well. Now, from what I understand on your late elk hunts, Cal, um, obviously you guys have some fantastic rut hunting, but you can also kill some pretty dang good bulls on those late hunts. Is that is that true, and why is that? Yeah, Jay, you know, we have, um, Oregon has a very, there's tons of different terrains throughout the state. So in a unit, it's not uncommon to be hunting bulls at 3,000 feet anywhere to 8,000 feet in one game management unit. So there's a lot of wintering ground, if you will, in those units. And the way you'll see our, our country is the, is the creek bottoms or the river bottoms are heavily timbered. The big tops are very timbered. And then we'll have big canyon break country that's pretty wide open. And uh, when those bulls move into those break canyon breaks is when they kind of become very susceptible to hunters. So typically what you'll see in some of our trophy rifle hunts is the later the dates you get, the better the hunting typically gets because those bulls will come out of the high country either because they're snowed or their feet has dried up and they'll move into those canyons. Um, it's very, you see these trends with a lot of our auction hunters in the state. Um, a lot of people will think that they want to go hunt in the rut. Um, but our state is not a very good state to hunt and rut with an auction tag because those bulls are going to be living up on the top flats or in the canyon bottoms. And you're having to filter these bulls one by one by one and then make a judgment of a bull in a very quick matter of time, uh, which is not conducive to killing the best bull or the highest age class or the largest scoring bull in the state. So a lot of times you'll see our auction hunters wait until all the other hunters have finished, usually around the first to second week in November, and then they'll kind of block out that end of November time period to focus on their hunting. Good stuff. Um, you mentioned a 350 bull in the state of Oregon is, is a true trophy, um, but every year it seems as though, you know, some 370, 380 type bulls get killed, um, you know, as thick as some of the country is and, and some of those private tracks, um, do you see any change in that in, in the fact that, you know, will it always probably produce 350-plus bulls because there are places where those elk can get older and, and, and grow up a little bit, as well as the thick timber where they can hide? I really think so, Jay. I think uh, the sky is the limit as far as what this state can produce. Um, we are not as affected by water drought nearly as much as, as the southwestern United States, you know, down in Arizona where you, you do a lot of hunting. We, we don't really have these drought years, so to speak. Of. We don't just, that's not even a topic discussed up here. You know, we'll have years that are drier than others, but bottom line, Jays, our creeks and rivers, they keep flowing no matter what. They don't go away. Our animals don't drink out of any drinkers or tanks or anything like that. So water is extremely plentiful. Um, as long as we keep our tag numbers, you know, to a um, to a level in which not not everything's getting shot out, so to speak, and we can manage our predators, i.e., these mountain lions and wolf populations, I think we can definitely continue to produce some of those super top end bulls. But uh, then again, you know. If you're shed hunting in this state, and, you know, I used to, before I had kids and was married, I got to do it a whole ton. And the amount of 350-plus bull sheds found in a single year are at a minimum, Jay. I mean, if, if you'd go all year long and you'd pick up one 350-plus set, that's not outrageous. It's really not. So I try and remind people of that all the time when they get these tags and say, you know, I'm, I'm going for 360-plus or whatever. And you can say, well... Well, we picked up 200 shed antlers. You know, that's a sample size of 100 different bulls there. And you know how many were 350 plus? One or two. So yeah, that, so that, that I think says it be, all. It says it all right yeah, there. Um, it's very real to a, a good sample size of of what the age class or genetics are producing. You mentioned predators. You mentioned uh, wolves, and you mentioned mountain lions. Um, talk a little bit about um, mountain lion hunting in Oregon. Talk a little bit about um, the, the wolf situation, uh, you know, you get some people saying the wolves uh, 
don't bother, you know, if, if you listen to the wolf side, they say that, that you know, they only feed on the sick. Uh, they don't prey on, you know, they just feed on the sick, and they're a nice balance. Um, you know, you're, you live right next to Idaho or very close. What do you see in the wolf department? And tell us a little bit about the mountain lions. Um, sure. Okay, I'll, I'll start with the uh, with the mountain lions there. Um, so. 1990, you know, what we vote about the liberal versus conservative side of the state here, um, but bottom line, it was in 1996 our state voted against the use of dogs to pursue mountain lions and black bears throughout the state. So, um, you know, even though the, you know, the entire eastern side of the state where the, where the majority of these animals live is all in support of it, um, the liberal Willamette Valley portion of our state carries the voting power of the entire state and uh, that was voted against unfortunately so we cannot hunt mountain lions um, with the aid of any dogs and you cannot do the same with black bears so since then we've seen a steady rise in populations of both actually throughout the state incidentally right doesn't make any sense but so we're definitely battling an issue there um, the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife has done several studies um, and we do pay a government houndsman a quite a quite a substantial amount of money to control the lion populations and quotas throughout the state. So you know he may work in the Winaha unit, and his quota may be 60 lions, and he'll work, and he'll end up you know we'll pay him government tax dollars to kill 60 lions, and then he'll move to the next unit, and he might not make it back to the Winaha for another five years until the program quota comes up again, if that makes any sense. So it's a definite issue. Um, we're seeing more mountain lions than ever. Uh, they're very tough to control by guys, you know, hunting them with predator calls or just killing them incidentally, I think, is what happens the majority of the time. And uh, as well as the wolves, definitely the commission meeting just occurred. And, you know, in the Mount Emily unit alone, the commission reported that the, the wolf pack had increased by a size of 51% in one year. So... I think that speaks extremely loudly of what's going on up there. We have a lot of livestock owners throughout northeast Oregon battling um, issues with the wolves and their livestock. Um, the department, uh, you know, when I speak about the Department of Fish and Wildlife, Jay, when you speak to the majority of them, the majority of them do feel like the wolf population needs to be, you know, controlled and maintained. They're all in favor of wolf management or wolf hunting. However, it seems that their their hands are tied, so to speak, by the legislation controlled by the west side of the state. So the wolves definitely do not prey on the weak or, or sick or, you know, whatever people are saying. They've had an adverse effect on the deer, the elk, um, all the animals throughout the state, and the wolves continue to spread in every single unit. So during the season, it's, it, you know, and I'm a young guy, Jay, I'm 27 years old, so I can't, I'm not going to act like I was around 30 years ago when, when these things weren't around, but I can tell you in the last 10 years, so to speak, I, you know, I don't remember going to camp every night after archery hunting and hearing the wolves howl, you know, every single night, and uh, the amount of wolf sightings and wolf encounters are definitely increasing exponentially. Yeah, well, it's definitely something to think about. Um, Cal, Let's, um, we've talked about elk. Let's move on to mule deer, and then I want to finish up with um, sheep. Um, the mule deer hunting in your state, uh, I noticed you guys shoot some pretty darn good bucks. Uh, talk a little bit about your mule deer. Sure. Um, you know, Jay, most of the state of Oregon is managed for opportunity for mule deer hunting. Um, there is a few units that have quote-unquote trophy hunts or late-season rut hunts or, or things like that. Um, I'll tell you that the majority of those hunts are not very good quality, um, both for, you know, the advent of either the hunt is reliant on a migration of deer that may or may not happen, or the wolves have really affected uh, the deer population, the cat population has affected the deer population, things like that. So um, mule deer hunting typically throughout the state, um, some of the better bucks are killed with archery equipment. Uh, we do have some big wilderness areas and high country areas throughout the state, and a lot of guys can come do that, including non-residents, Jay. So those are over-the-counter opportunities if a non-resident was interested in. They could definitely come have a good quality hunt. Our rifle hunting in, in Oregon, Jay, is it usually starts around the last day of the month of September, and you're hunting about the first 10 days of the month of October. So, there, in our opinion, no no tougher time to kill a big mature mule deer buck than those dates right there. So, pretty darn tough. Um, 
Very similar to elk, uh, we manage big piece of private ground in the Lookout Mountain unit. Um, we kind of refer to it as the nursery often. Um, kill very few deer. Uh, we try and grow deer to an uh, you know upper end age class uh, to fulfill their full genetic potential. Um, that being said, Jay, we can definitely produce some really, really big bucks and some top-level deer, but it's not a guaranteed thing. You know, some deer are just going to be 165 inches no matter how old they get. And then every now and then you'll get that three-and-a-half-year-old, but, you know, it's 200-plus-inch deer. So last year we were really fortunate and killed two really big deer, one uh, just shy of 220 with, uh, with Blake Chartini, actually. So I know you're, you're friends with all those guys over at Go Hunt as well. So Lorenzo's brother Blake came over, um, and we killed a really big deer in Central Oregon, um, and then uh, we killed another deer over in Eastern Oregon that was uh, just right at 205 with uh, Alan Shearer. Nice. So say those, deer, those deer are definitely far, far above average and far above standard representation. Um, even in our auction hunts, we tell most of our hunters that the Oregon auction deer hunt is a 190-inch deer hunt with the opportunity to potentially kill a bigger deer than that. Is, is it strictly a, a, a numbers game in the fact that if, if they limited the tags a little bit more, would you see the quality go up, or is it genetically they're just um, not going to be a lot of big deer. It seems like if, if it seems like there's high tag numbers. If the tag numbers were lower, it seems like the quality would go up. I'm curious your opinion on that. You know, Jay, I don't know if everybody would share my opinion. Even at Sheep Mountain, I don't know if everybody would share my opinion. Everybody's got a little different one. Uh, but my opinion is this: I think our state has some absolutely phenomenal genetics for mule deer. Um, you know, in, in northeastern Oregon, we produce big, heavy bucks, you know, non-typical characteristics be, you know, via drop tines or, or kickers or things like that. But, you know, we see those things. I won't say commonly, Jay, but they're they're definitely around. And if you look towards central Oregon even, um, I'm sure you've seen some photos of that Ben Buck that was, you know, he was essentially a tame city deer. But there's a lot of deer like that deer in that area. And, they, you know, that is a great example of phenomenal genetics and what genetic potential can be reached if those deer just get to age, you know, age class. So I think we have the genetic potential throughout the state. I think it's a, a combination of, you know, a lot of deer get killed, a lot of young deer get killed by hunters. Uh, predation is definitely an issue that affects our mule deer. And then we're coming out of some rough winter time as well. So, so we're climbing out of what was one of the roughest winters we've had in the last, last decade or so. As far as rough, as you're talking too much snow? Yeah, Jay, that's kind of what happened. We got a lot of snow. Um, you know, the deep snow doesn't seem to affect them as much. It's this combination of deep snow and then a hard freeze, and it makes it really tough for these deer to get to their feed. Um, and, you know, we, we had a really rough winter, and, and the deer that were alive, you know, all these, you know if, we're, if we can just come to the agreement that there's not very many bucks out there, for example, that are six-plus years old, those deer in their entire lifetime had never experienced a winter like that. So they didn't necessarily know where they needed to go. They just knew that they have wintered on this hillside for my entire life for the last five years, and I've always been able to survive. So they can essentially get trapped in that big canyon country we were speaking about earlier, and then they're kind of they're starved out, basically, Jay, and they, and they definitely are not as hardy as an elk or a, or a mountain goat, and they can, they can be susceptible to that winter kill. They're almost sitting ducks. You're exactly right. It makes them really susceptible to the winter kill as well as predation. So the Department of Fish and Wildlife made some great changes, though, in northeast Oregon here. They reduced some tag numbers on, on mule deer specifically, um, and we definitely love to see the tag numbers stay down like that. You know, less young deer getting killed mean more deer growing up to their full potential. Um, but I know, as you spoke of on your podcast, as I listened to it for a long time, not everybody is into you know, the biggest, oldest, most mature mule deer possible. Some people are more into just going and filling the freezer every year. So we've got to be sensitive to the fact that, you know, different hunters have different prerogatives, I guess you'd say. For sure. Uh, Cal, before we jump into sheep, I want to thank the sponsors of this podcast, and I want to uh, uh, thank them specifically, the GoHunt.com Insider. I want to encourage guys to sign up for the best Western hunting resource uh, to do all your statistical studies and, and harvest harvest data uh, and um, draw odds and all of that resource uh, is available at GoHunt.com Insider. 
If you use the J. Scott promo code, you're going to get a $50 Go Hunt Gear Shop gift card. I want to thank GoHunt.com Insider for their sponsorship. Also, uh, Kuyu.com. Uh, Cal, I know you are a big Kuyu supporter, and we can talk about that in a little bit. Uh, go to Kuyu, that's K-U-I-U.com, and check out all the great gear that uh, Kuyu makes. Uh, Phonescope.com, use the J. Scott 16 promo code. You're going to get a 10% discount on all products. Uh, Cheston Davis and his crew over there at Phonescope, I want to thank them. And then the Outdoorsmans, uh, use the J. Scott promo code, uh, get a 10% discount on all Outdoorsmans products. You can call 1-800-291-8065, or you can go to outdoorsmans.com uh, to, uh, to get that discount using the J. Scott promo code. I want to thank them. Uh, Cal... Uh, while we're on it, um, I noticed uh, you wear a lot of Kuyu. What is it about Kuyu that, that's drawn you to them as a company? And I noticed a lot of your kill photos, uh, uh, you're wearing Kuyu. I do, Jay. I, I really like Kuyu. I really like Jason and good friends with Brendan Burns as well. Um, you know, what I would say, Jay, is I, I love the fact that that company doesn't rest on the laurels of their previous successes. You know, all the time Brendan is telling me, hey, this is what we got coming down the line. I'm going to send these to you. I want you to try these out. Give me honest feedback, whether it's the greatest thing in the world or it's the worst thing you've ever tried in your life, you know. Um, I really love that the, that company focuses on guys out there that are in their gear or in their clothing all year long, hunting, guiding, outfitting, casual wear, what, what have you. And uh, they really put a lot of importance on the feedback they get from people throughout the industry um, rather than just, throwing gear at, at random, if you will, Jay, as uh, I've definitely seen other companies do throughout the industry. And I truly believe they make some of the very best outdoor gear there is, hands down. Yeah, me too. I agree. Uh, Cal, you have um, been knocking it out of the park, you guys, um, you know, with your, with your bighorn sheep. Talk a little bit about the different sheep species. Uh, within the state of Oregon and your area focus and and um, the different units and what have you. Sure, Dan. I or uh, sure, Jay. I was going to speak about Dan Blankenship real fast. He's uh, you know this all started for me back in 2012. My wife was lucky enough to draw a Rocky Mountain Bighorn sheep tag in the state, and then incidentally. My sheep mentor, uh, Dan Blankenship, is now one of our partners at Sheep Mountain Outfitters. So it's kind of funny how it goes full circle, but uh, sheep is something we're extremely passionate about, and our state manages some fantastic sheep herds. So I'd start off by saying um, Oregon offers uh, controlled California bighorn sheep hunts as well as Rocky Mountain bighorn sheep hunts, um, with the California, of course, being the subspecies of the Rocky Mountain. But... You, when you apply in Oregon, they do not differentiate. So you just apply for one bighorn sheep tag or permit. Um, they don't separate them as far as a, a different series or anything like that. So at Sheep Mountain Outfitters specifically, um, kind of our home unit uh, is the Lookout Mountain unit. Um, there, we really, really like that unit. We've had really great success uh, killing on a regular basis, uh, bighorns in excess of 180 inches net, um, with the biggest of those, you know, even breaking 190. So we really love the Lookout Mountain unit. In uh, 2018, the Department of Fish and Wildlife is going to offer a non-resident tag in Lookout as well. Um, so in the past few years, they actually moved a non-resident tag from another unit, and then they put it in the Lookout Mountain unit because the herd is having such great success. So really enjoy gui guiding in that unit. Um, with all of the guys. Uh, as far as California bighorns go, uh, the state has some really great, I mean, I'm looking down the list of units here, Jay, and every one of these units can produce an absolute stud ram. Um, we really like guiding uh, on the East John Day River, on the east side of the river. We've got some great private land secured over there, um, and we've killed some great 175-inch-plus California bighorns, which are just absolute studs. Um, we really enjoy the Potamus Canyon, too, which is uh, kind of the northern portion of the John Day, but that hunt is only open to uh, resident hunters. So, For a non-resident looking to apply, I'd highly suggest uh, Lookout Mountain number two if you're into uh, big Rocky Mountain bighorn. And then uh, if you're looking for a California bighorn hunt with maybe a little better odds, we recommend that East John Day number two hunt. There is a non-resident tag available for that as well. 
Good stuff. Talk about a couple of those big rams that you guys have been able to harvest over the last couple of years and, you know, the, the heartache of, of <laughs> I know you've been sending me photos and, and um, I know what it's like to kind of keep your eye on a ram and, you know, have them be there and then have them disappear and then have them show back up and then, ha you know, between watching them all year long and, and then trying to get them in the right place at the right time when the hunter shows up is sometimes a whole different story. Sure, it's uh, it's very <laughs> sheep hunting is is ups and downs and and uh, all the lulls in between there. Um, so Dan has a cabin on the Snake River down there, and his his father Buck is also retired, and I think he he spends every single day of the year looking at big sheep throughout the year, you know. So um, and I know Dan spends a ton of time as well, and then the team uh, will kind of rotate and and spend our time down there on the river looking at different sheep and we really like to have a good idea jay of who the up-and-comers are um, but flat out the genetic potential in our area you know you can look at a ram at about five or six years old and say boy he might do it and then the next year he can just explode into a giant you know and they do so much growth between the age of, uh, of six and eight years old, and which is really where we're trying to harvest them. You know, eight, seven to nine and a half years old is typically where we're harvesting our sheep. So, um, last year, yeah, we were hunting with Brock, and I know you know you're familiar with Brock as well. And he he called us and said he he was hunting. Uh, he was going to buy the Oregon auction tag, and he wanted to hunt with a bow only. So that definitely added some pressure there. Hunted with hunters before with, with arch, archery equipment, and to be honest, most of them pulled the rifle out on the second or third day of the hunt. So uh, I could tell by speaking with Brock that was not going to be an option. He wasn't even bringing a gun kind of thing. So um, we, had, uh, we had the ram picked out that we wanted to hunt, and, and Buck and Dan had, had been on him. And, and just as you said, he, uh, they're just so nomadic. They move constantly and just for no reason. You know, They'll be with one band of rams for for a week and then all of a sudden get up and just go on a six mile walkabout and turn around and maybe walk back the next day or go six more miles the other way the next day. So very, very tough, tough and difficult to, to stay on without a doubt. Yeah, it's, it's nerve wracking for sure. And that's one thing that's so different in my mind about sheep as opposed to say elk or mule deer or coos deer or something like that where they have, you know, canyons, they have areas that they like to live in. You can find them year after year and I, I always say, you know, the the worst place to look for a big sheep is the last place you saw them. I mean, it it, it they seem to never, you know, just when you think, oh, he's going to be right there where he's been the last couple of days, you know, you can't find him and you find him, you know, 10 miles away and you're just, you know, it, it's definitely nerve-wracking. That was a beautiful sheep that Brock shot, um, big ram, um, real full curl. I'm looking at his picture now on your website. I encourage the listeners to check out you guys' website and it's huntsmo.com. So that's hunt s sheep mountain outfitters.com. SMO.com. Uh, beautiful ram. Um, where does he stack up as far as archery ram uh, in the state of Oregon? He's got to be pretty high. Uh, he is the current state record. So Brock, uh, Brock's got the current state record. Uh, I know uh, Casey Brooks' ram is right there next to Brock's, and then I think uh, uh, Ray Wardinger killed a ram just a few years ago that was right around that 185 mark as well, Jay. So three rams kind of north of 185 right there with archery equipment. Pretty impressive. You talk about your wife in 2012, talk about her drawing a tag, and that was your first real dive into sheep, but it sounds like your um dive into sheep hunting is a lot like mine i i dove in in 2009 a friend of mine drew a sheep tag and really never really paid attention to sheep to be honest with you and then um once he drew that tag and we started scouting it seemed like you know that's been you know nine years ago um it, it gets in your head and it gets to where sometimes that's all you can think about talk a little bit about um, your wife getting that tag and uh, was she your wife at the time or maybe even maybe your girlfriend I'm not sure but um, talk a little bit about how you know diving into it and getting that in your blood and how it just sticks with you sure Jay it's uh, it's like uh, it's definitely I've heard guys describe it as a drug and I don't use any other drugs but that's the best way I could describe it I really it was absolutely incredible I think sheep had just been such an unattainable thing uh, uh, you know I just thought so and always knew where I wanted to hunt sheep, and I, she was my girlfriend at the time, Jay. We were both in college, a couple broke college kids, and, and 
she drew the tag, and I remember refreshing the page multiple times thinking it was some kind of sick joke, and uh, we did not truly know what kind of emotional roller coaster we were about to go on when she drew that tag. So um, she did draw the first season tag in the Lookout Mountain unit, and it was uh, we were down there. I actually had Shelby. She used to work at this uh, convenience store just down the, down the road from the college, and she quit her job. And I changed the schedule of my job going to school to where I was only going to school three or four days a week and then skipping out and we were spending the rest of our time down in Hell's Canyon. So um, I think what really hooked me, Jay, being completely honest, is uh, the mentorship I received from Dan Blankenship. You know, I think he saw a couple kids that didn't know anything about what they were doing. We didn't have the right gear. We didn't have the right anything. Um, but we had the passion and the will and the determination to make a success out of this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, you know. So we worked really hard at it, and I didn't know anything about scoring sheep or nothing. All I could do, Jay, was use a borrowed spotting scope and take phone scope photos of sheep that I'd find. Um, we didn't have four-wheelers or nothing like that, so every day at 4 a.m. it was Shelby and I taking off and climbing two or 3,000 vertical feet and, and getting in there and looking at these different bands of rams. And I, I remember specifically every night we'd go meet with Dan and say, hey, this is what I found and this is what I found. And, and I remember very specifically uh, the day we found this particular ram. And, and my wife says, my wife now says, well, that's the ram I want to shoot right there. That's the one I want. And uh, I took the photo to Dan, and I slid it across the table, and he slid it back to me with a chuckle on his face, and he said, well, you found him. That's the one. And uh, he that's said, awesome. that's, the ram you need, that's the ram you need to kill. And, you know, he, he didn't give us anything. He didn't, he didn't just – he could have very easily just taken us up the hill and said, yep, there it is right there. Go kill it, you know. And having to work for it make it – you know, made it mean so much more to us. And I think it really just made that passion um, burn super hot inside me and Shelby as well. So and then it was an emotional roller coaster after that, you know, because we had uh, we had that ram picked out we wanted to kill, but bottom line was the auction hunter and the raffle hunter were going to come hunt first um, two weeks before we could hunt. So we had to sit back and, and hope that nobody found him, and, and we were super fortunate, Jay, and nobody could turn that ram up where he was living. And uh, we went in there and killed him and He's 193-inch ram, the biggest ram ever killed in the unit to this day. So absolutely incredible sheep, 17 by 43, um, 42 on the other side. So just an absolute hammer. Yeah, phenomenal-looking sheep for sure. That, that's awesome. Um, so between the elk, uh, the sheep, and the mule deer, um, you know, th those are three animals that you focus on. I noticed that you um, – you didn't spend any time turkey hunting this spring. I, know, I noticed that first and foremost. But second off, it uh, uh, looks like you did some bear hunting. Talk a little bit about your bears and how much are you into them? Or is it one of those things if you get a tag or just if you have time? Um, and sure, talk Jay, a little we, bit about the quality of bears. Sure, we have a lot of bears in the state. There's kind of two other species we focus on at Sheep Mountain. Uh, we do a lot of mountain goat hunting as well. And uh, we do love the bear hunting as well. So Oregon offers controlled spring bear hunting, meaning that the hunters do have to draw a tag to hunt them controlled in the spring. Uh, but it's a great time to get out. You know, everything's green. There's shed horns out. Uh, mushrooms are coming up. And, and the bears are out just having come out of their dens. So we, uh, we just finished up uh, with some bear hunters, and, and they had a great hunt. Um, with, uh, with good success and everything was great. Um, most of the time, the bear hunters really have a great experience just because the weather's so good and, and they like going out there and, and hunting um, when it's been a long, long winter, you know, and everybody's kind of fiending to get out. So in the fall, we can also hunt bears. Uh, August 1st, all of these controlled units go to just general fall bear hunting. So if a guy's into that, um, they can do that as well. And, and we really enjoy doing it too um, from the predator predator management aspect of it. It really helps our fawn and calf crop as well. Most of those hunts, you know, spot and stock, you know, good glassing type, type situations, or is it pretty thick and not real glassable? Yeah, good question, Jay. It's all spot and stock. So we, we cannot do any baiting in the state of Oregon for bears. Um, so it's all spot and stock. And when these bears come out of their dens, uh, they're generally not eating meat for about the first month or two that they come out. So they're kind of you know, in the early mornings, uh, the evenings seem to be the best time to hunt them, but they're out on these big hillsides. Uh, sometimes, Jay, they'll be right out in the middle, smack dab in the hot sun. And uh, 
and they're just eating wild onions that are coming up or some of the fresh grass roots that are coming up. A lot of times we see these bears tend to follow the snow line up, trying to get that greenest feed as soon as it's coming out of the ground. Good stuff. What about your mountain goat hunting? Um, I, I know you, you actually live right around some of the better units. We do. The state of Oregon, um, you know, Jay, in all honesty, I'd say, you know, 80% or more of our units can produce a 50-inch mountain goat. Um, I think Oregon really holds back on the amount of tags that they issue. Um, and they could probably issue a lot more, but I'm, I'm a big fan of how they do it because we keep our quality extremely high and the age class of these goats are extremely high. And I know you're, you've hunted mountain goats. Um, you, you, I don't think you could win or kill one of those if you tried. They seem to live <laughs> at the top of the nastiest stuff there is. So they're a very hardy animal, um, you know, pending they don't fall off a cliff. They pretty much die of old age around here. So um, for, for any hunters that are interested in hunting with us, um, we really like a couple of hunts. The Elkhorns um, offers a non-resident tag. It's in the second season, so Elkhorns number two. Uh, that's a great hunt. Uh, the Elkhorns are a really high mountain unit, um, but there's great trail systems throughout and some great access to the trail system. So if a hunter is maybe a little older or he doesn't get around as well as he once did, um, but still is interested in pursuing mountain goats, that's a great, great hunt that uh, we'd encourage you guys to apply for. We uh, we took the auction hunter in there last year and killed a great big mountain goat as well late in the season. Goats have great hair, um, so we really like that. The other one that offers a non-resident tag is Hat Point, which is located in that North Snake River country, Hell's Canyon. So um, the potential is through the roof, Jay. I would not be surprised if the next state record or you know, potential wor world record mountain goat could come out of that unit. Um, very healthy goat population. I think a lot of goats die of old age just strictly because they're inaccessible and it's a very brutal hunt. Um, you'll typically camp on top. You, you know, it's not out of the question to drop 25 to 3,500 vertical feet just to come up, you know, that same evening and, and do it again the next day kind of thing. Now, are all of those hunts uh, rifle hunts or do they also have archery hunts in there? So the state of Oregon does not actually dictate uh, one versus the other. Um, they're all listed as kind of a rifle hunt, so you could use which, whatever you'd like, whether that be a muzzleloader, archery, handgun, you know, whatever you'd like to do, Jay. Okay. Very good stuff. Um, Cal, it's always great talking to you, and um, I, I know the listeners are going to probably want to follow up more with you. I want to encourage them to follow you first on Instagram, and your Instagram, I'll link it in the show notes. It's Cal underscore uh, Halliday, H-A-L-L-A-D-A-Y. Um, and then also, like I said, on the Sheep Mountain Outfitters, that's hunts, excuse me, huntsmo.com. Uh, Cal, before, we, before I let you go, I want to talk a little bit about um, working with Bob Beck and um, you guys do shooting schools and what have you. Talk a little bit about if people are interested in learning more about uh, MOA rifles and some of the shooting schools that you guys do. Sure, Jay. So, so I, uh, I, I do sales, uh, specifically kind of consumer sales for Bob Beck, uh, owner of Extreme Outer Limits and MOA rifles. Um, so they produce some of the, the very best long-range rifles in the world, without a doubt, uh, as well as uh, Bob has a TV show, Extreme Matter Limits TV, on the Sportsman's channel. Um, I think the thing that separates Bob from a lot of these other companies is the full circle approach kind of to his, to his business. So, you know, there's a lot of companies out there that sell long-range rifles and a lot of companies that make great shooting long-range rifles. But Bob has a series of shooting schools that he puts on, some different level schools located in both Central Oregon, and then we do an advanced level school um, in conjunction with Sheep Mountain Outfitters on that private ground in Eastern Oregon. And our shooting schools are really targeted towards hunters. So we, uh, you know, some of these other schools, Jay, you'll go to and you're going to be shooting off of a bench and you're going to be shooting a suppressed rifle and a low caliber and, and you're going to be shooting on a range that has berms on it to where you're not really fighting environmental conditions and you're going to dial a turret and smack a thousand yard target and get put, you know, patted on the butt and said, how great you are, and, and then move on. Well, I can definitely assure you Bob's schools are a lot different than that. So um, Bob will do whatever he's got to do to make you miss because you learn more from missing than actually hitting. So 
we shoot on the ground in the prone position using our actual hunting rifles, you know, um, some bigger caliber stuff all the way down to, you know, small deer, elk, or deer, antelope, sheep caliber rifles. And, and we, we battle the real-life environmental conditions that you'll face in the field. Um, our advanced school is really scenario-based, so hunters will, will come to a target scenario that is maybe, um, you know, you have to move to this shooting position, then you have to find your own target out there, and maybe it's a uh, 500-yard deer, you know, and you have to lay down, dope your environmentals on your rifle, fire a shot, and then within 30 seconds, you need to reload, and you need to shoot the further target at 600 yards, which is perhaps you made a less than perfect or ideal shot on that deer at 500, the deer is wounded, it went out to 600, and now you need to make a follow-up shot to close the deal kind of thing. So that's just um, the different scenarios will just introduce one component typically that you see out in the field actually hunting, whether that be a steep downhill, a steep uphill, uh, you know, a tricky, uh, a tricky wind where you have two canyons coming together or one shot will present a very big updraft for a hunter. What we're trying to do is get our guys proficient and ready in the field to where they can recognize these conditions. When they feel that strong wind at their back and they see that deer out there at 700 yards, they know that that wind is likely going right past them, hitting the hillside and creating an updraft effect when that deer is standing on the, on the hill. So they'll recognize that situation, make the appropriate steps, and then engage the target and make first shot kills. Um, that's really what the schools are about, and we've seen absolute great success. We have guys come back every single year utilizing the schools as just kind of a tune-up for that year's Western Big Game Hunt. Awesome stuff, man. Awesome stuff. I'd uh, love to talk to you more about it uh, on another podcast, and I'd uh, love to have Bob on as well and, and uh, chat with him. Um, Cal, keep up the great work. Um, Look forward to seeing you probably uh, this this winter at some shows or what have you, and um, uh, just just keep doing what you're doing. Love following you on, on Instagram and love the content you produce. And uh, uh, you've got a, a, a great, beautiful family, and just uh, encourage you to keep uh, keep doing what you're doing, man. It's it's uh, fun to see young guys that are really dialed in uh, in all aspects of their life and. Uh, um, just uh, one of those guys that's a big fan of yours, and i um, glad you were able to come on the podcast here and share with us. Uh, thank you very much, Jay. I appreciate you having me on, and, and I'm sure I can say on behalf of everybody at Sheep Mountain as well as MOA and Extreme Matter Limits, thanks for, for taking the time to have us and hear what we got to say. Absolutely, buddy. Well, good luck in the draws this year, and I'll be chatting at you down the road, okay? Hey, sounds good. Let's get you applied. Okay, sounds good. All right, buddy. Thank you. Bye.